G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to Lockdown, character strengths and silver linings, your guide to applying positive psychology in seclusion. I suppose it took me a little while to almost get to this point, but I'm joined again by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey. Dad, how are you doing today? Good, thanks Rowan. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. Now, today on the podcast we've got a bit of a, I suppose, a heavier topic coming up. Now, we've entitled today's episode Dealing with Depression. So, Dad, why have we called today's episode Dealing with Depression? Well, I suppose the idea of dealing with is having the idea that there are some things that we can do about it. And hopefully through this podcast, people can, at the end of this podcast, if people have been dealing with depression or experiencing depression, having some sense of there, there are ways we can make a difference. And I suppose it also goes back to the idea that we spoke about last week with anxiety about not completely eliminating or not thinking that we have to eliminate depression all at once. Yes, like all forms of psychological distress, we go better when we look at different ways of also bearing with, managing with, coping with, muddling through, getting by. It's not about mastery. It's not about being on top of things. It's more ways of muddling through. That's often the only realistic way to make progress with depression. Well, today we want to cover a couple of different aspects of depression. We not just want to talk about what depression is, we want to talk about why it occurs. And Dad, we'll be also sharing some of our experiences with depression as well. And I suppose the reason for that is you and I, in our own way, really want to get across the idea that there is always a way out with depression. And and look, suicide is never the answer, is it? Absolutely, because uh, as we'll focus on today, depression is a lot to do with negative thinking and often very exaggerated negative thinking that both you and I would have experienced when we went through a bout of depression. And so the thing is, when you do come through it and learn from it, there are actually some wonderful things that you can gain from that kind of perspective. And I suppose even apart from working in a psychology practice, from having had that experience and coming through it and the kind of learning that we've both gained from coming through depression, hopefully some of that comes across because then hopefully that helps counter some of the helplessness that goes with depression to maybe being a bit more hopeful and realistically so. And it's some of that change in perspective that we want to focus on today because as with every episode on the podcast, we like to keep a positive flavour on things. So yes, we'll be going into our stories a little bit and look, I will just mention as well, if this does bring up anything for anyone, please feel free to call Lifeline. The number is 13 11 14. They do a great job and run a great service. But also please mention to your friends and your family and always feel free to reach out to your GP because they're the first port of call that can usually set you up with a psychologist can't they? Absolutely and so the theme is when you're feeling overwhelmed when you're feeling stuck you don't have to be isolated you don't have to be just on your own there is always help there and people are very willing to help and able to help in different ways if you do reach out. So we will as I say get into some of the more positive ways of dealing with depression but just before we do that dad What exactly is depression? Well, 
sometimes people might use the term depression a bit lightly, meaning that they feel you know pretty sad or whatever. But when we talk about clinical depression, like a psychological condition or disorder, so to speak, there, there are nine characteristic symptoms, some core symptoms, some physical symptoms, and then what we call some cognitive symptoms. And I will go through them because it does help to kind of calibrate where people are at or have that awareness of when are you depressed to the point where it really might be worth seeking further help, like say being clinically depressed. The two core symptoms are feeling a persistently low mood or loss of pleasure in activities for most of the day for most days over a couple of weeks. Another persistent symptoms over a couple of weeks, the physical ones are poor sleep or persistent tiredness, typically reduced appetite or slowed movements. And then the common cognitive symptoms are problems with concentration or decision making feelings of guilt or worthlessness, and then suicidal thoughts or thoughts of death. And technically, if people have five of those nine symptoms, most of the day for most days, over a couple of weeks, then that's what we call like a clinical depression. And are people often aware that they're experiencing that level of clinical depression? Well, when people are in the throes of depression, they, they tend to typically know then that something's you know really out of whack for them and might have a sense, but it can creep up on people. Like a number of people become depressed after a period of extra stress at work or in family life and they're gradually getting burnt out. And if people keep on with extra stresses that are persisting, then that can lead on to depression before people are aware of it. And then they might not be aware of how much their thoughts have become more negatively skewed because it's crept up on them. And I suppose part of that could almost be exacerbated by our idea of almost getting on with it in society. That idea of, well, it wasn't that long ago that depression was was quite stigmatized so people really did have that idea of you know you have to be stoic you have to get on with it it's not okay to experience this sort of stuff so I wonder if that's almost a remnant of that way of thinking yeah look I think that is a a really big theme because there's something to be said for stoic thinking there's something to be said for trying to accept things and just get on with things and many people will be doing that in the COVID era to get by but by the same token that can be taken too far and if people have very harsh expectations on themselves and they're just pushing on and pushing on despite the fact that they're feeling you know more overwhelmed and if people aren't accepting that or think they should be handling it better that's when people are really more at risk of becoming depressed. So what are some of the common causes of depression? Well, there'll be events that happen, there'll be attitudes and things like that. Like in terms of events that happen, then often depression revolves around loss. And so grief can overlap with depression. Actually, sometimes these days, if people experience those depression symptoms I mentioned earlier, when they're grieving, they can also be diagnosed as depressed. But I think it is worth making the distinction and saying, well, that's pretty understandable with loss. But also it can be loss compared to what people were hoping to have at a certain point in their life. Like it's a perceived loss where people can also feel helpless because they can feel overwhelmed by circumstances. And so if people get burnt out through persistent stress and that goes on, so that's another aspect. In terms of attitudes though, a lot of it comes down to expectations, expectations on ourselves. The number one personality characteristic that contributes to depression is perfectionism. So harsh, 
black and white expectations of oneself. And then also, I suppose, biology can come into it. Some people are going to be a bit more susceptible to become depressed if they have a strong family history of depression. And how have some of the treatments around depression changed in recent years with the advent of positive psychology? Well, beyond the original treatments, often focusing on, say, antidepressant medication, and then there was a lot of success with cognitive behavioural therapy that we'll talk about more detail later on, where people recognised if they engaged in activities, increased their activity level, that would help, especially activities that give a sense of achievement and pleasure. And then picking up on negative thinking, challenging negative thinking so look I might mention that conventionally what we look at in psychology is when people are depressed they tend to have three different types of negative thoughts negative thoughts about themselves negative thoughts about things that happen negative thoughts about the future and so conventional psychology as well as positive psychology has taken this up looking to counter the negative thinking we know that physical exercise there's a lot more research about how that can help people but I think that positive psychology helps in terms of even things like the three blessings exercise where people at the end of the day think of three things that went well that's extraordinarily hard to do when people are depressed but if people persist And they really look to do that exercise and actually write down three things that went okay. It might be that there was a beautiful sunrise or they had a phone call from a friend or they saw a favourite TV program or something like that. When people start to notice the things that go okay, that for a number of people with depression is like a turning point. It's a nudge factor. It nudges from the negative a bit more towards the positive thinking. So that's a positive psychology exercise. And um, look, to some extent, the character strengths are relevant, as, as we'll talk about in more detail later on. Well, it almost reminds me of that idea that we spoke about in the second episode of Doing What You Can, where we spoke about the character strengths can potentially be used to nudge you towards doing enough of something to sort of say, okay, look, at least I've sort of done this for the day. So it seems to me that part of dealing with depression is recognising, for lack of a better term, the little wins, whether it be, you know, a nice day, whether it be a nice exchange with someone. It's, it's almost making a bit more of an effort to pay more attention to those little positive things. And obviously, positive psychology gives us much more opportunity to do that. Yes, that whole emphasis on nudging ourselves towards the positive. Now, it's very hard to do because when people are depressed, by definition, there's a negative filter in people's thinking. It tends to filter out the positive, so it's hard to come up with the positive. And, um, and actually, th- this reminds me too, another thing from positive psychology is the theme of self-compassion. Compassion for others, but also self-compassion. When people are depressed, they tend to get stuck into themselves, which I suspect that you will relate to from remembering having gone through a time like that yourself, like I certainly do. And so it's the self-damnation, if you like. And I think one of the biggest problems with depression is the shame and guilt that people commonly experience. It can tie in with expectations and perfectionism, but often people think they shouldn't be depressed. Often people will feel angry with themselves or very rejecting of themselves, thinking they should have handled things so much better than they have. And so it really goes a long way if people can even be open to considering having a bit of compassion for themselves because that's often a core to get away from that self-damnation, that self-criticism that often people get stuck with. Well, as you say, yeah, can can certainly relate to that from my experience. And the other thing that I can relate to from my experience is look, being pretty bloody damn good at hiding it. 
and, and yeah. sort of hiding those sort of feelings. So I suppose it is something that we're going to come across from time to time that someone is going to be in that state of depression and they are going to hide it and they're going to be quite good at hiding it. So we've spoken about some of the symptoms, but are there any telltale signs, and it's going to be a little bit individual for everyone, but I suppose as a psychologist, are there any things that you're looking out for that you get a little bit alarmed by, whether it be in someone's behaviour, whether it be in their sort of withdrawal, their way of thinking, but when someone is in that stage of trying to hide their level of depressive feelings, how can you tell that it's not just a low mood for a few days here and there, it actually is something more serious? Okay, yeah, look, that, that's an important point because it can be actually very tricky to pick up on and partly it's by intuition that we do. But look, um, I suppose first of all, like you've alluded there to some of the more obvious things, like if over a couple of days maybe someone seems more withdrawn, they seem not their usual selves, they might seem even more irritable rather than more flat but you might notice that they're not engaging in things so much as they usually do and they seem to lack a bit of spark that they might normally have. These might be the more overt signs that we notice and we feel that the person's not looking to relate to us as much, they're looking to be more withdrawn. But when people really look to hide their depression, it can be very difficult to pick up on it to the point where, like just say as a psychologist and as I mentioned to my colleagues in supervision, for example, what we often talk about is maybe one of the main ways we pick up is how do we feel when a client has left the room? So it might be the end of the session and sometimes you're left with a particular feeling that you can't even put your finger on exactly where that came from, but you might be left with feeling of real concern or a feeling of like a bit of helplessness or a more bleak feeling or a hollow or empty feeling. And so sometimes we can pick up a little bit of the feeling from someone else. So if we notice a certain kind of feeling after we've interacted with someone then that can be a bit of a hint of their feeling state that they might not be conveying as directly. But look, when it boils down to it, the truth is it can be so difficult to tell when people are concealing things that in many ways it's best to ask. Now, picking our timing to ask, like it can be an uncomfortable conversation, but that's the idea of are you okay day? If we notice that someone seems a bit different from usual, to give ourselves a license to say, hey, look, uh, it just seems to me the last couple of days you, you don't seem to be your usual self in some ways. You're normally a bit more sparky or join with us when we do this or do that kind of thing. You know, I'm just wondering, you know, are you okay? And in any other way, looking to even spend time with someone and just see if there's a little bit of an opportunity to start a conversation about how such and such going or whatever. And we're looking to pick up on the person's view of the world and the future. Can the person think of present things in the future in a slightly positive way or a bit of hopefulness? Or does it seem that there's an absence of the person being able to think of the future or be able to consider the future in any kind of positive way? There's some of the hints that we have. But the main thing is to care. Like if people care about someone else and spend time with them, that's enormously helpful. But maybe being, being prepared to ask the person, look, I just wonder, you know, how are you going? You know, like, tell me really, how are you going? And that sometimes will make a difference to give permission for the person to speak. Well, I suppose if I look back at different points in my life, there's different ideas of what masculinity 
is in certain ways and and maybe to go back to that point of what I spoke about before with that idea of sort of being stoic and pushing on through things and not letting other things too external get you down I wonder what your experiences are in terms of whether conversations with maybe young men have changed at all in the last few years or even older men but I just know in my experience the idea of men and mental health has, I suppose, changed so much just over my lifetime, even following things like football. But is that your experience as well, that things have changed, particularly for men, around conversations to do with depression in the last few years? Look, I think very much so. And I do notice this with seeing clients of a range of ages. I think that young men uh, maybe find it a little bit easier to open up and acknowledge difficulties in certain ways. Whereas uh, there's a fellow I would have started seeing recently, a very resourceful and capable fellow in his 70s. And it would have been very difficult for him to see a psychologist for the first time at that age. And at first it didn't sit well with him, whereas after you know, four or five contacts, he really enjoys it. You know, he'd miss it if he didn't have some follow-up contact. And unfortunately, he's gone very well with his depression. But um, yeah, I think that there is that factor where men often find it harder to accept being vulnerable. And like we talked about last time, that in fact, when people accept their vulnerability and think, look, I could be hurt, I could be touched, and I can handle that, that's the nature of vulnerability, then that's a kind of emotional security. But there are different ways of being emotionally insecure, as we talked about last time. It could be either, oh, look, I feel hurt, I feel overwhelmed, and I can't stand it. That's one way of being insecure. But another way of not accepting one's vulnerability is to think, well, this doesn't affect me, I'm above this, this doesn't touch me, I'm okay, when in fact you're not. That's actually not strength. That's a kind of fear and insecurity. And I think that men are learning that you can be strong and still be vulnerable. And that actually helps our relationships. It helps us be better connected with other people. What really hammered at home for me recently was I was listening to a podcast with, it was Mike Tyson and Sugar Ray Robinson. So two of, you know, essentially two of the blokiest blokes, if you were to, I suppose, take that almost black and white view of what masculinity is or what it was seen as for a very long time. And they were having this conversation and and both of them were in tears. And Mike Tyson was talking about the fact that he never, well, essentially he never made peace with his shadow side. And he was talking about the fact that there was almost this animal within him that he was never able to control. And so he almost had to completely suppress that. And then Sugar Ray Robinson was actually talking about being sexually abused by one of his early boxing trainers. So I just thought to myself, like, what a change in situation are we in now where, you know, when Mike Tyson was fighting, which, you know, relatively, it wasn't that long ago, when he was fighting, you know, he would never in a million years have let anyone into, you know, 1% of what he was feeling in that degree. I suppose potentially, you know, it's quite illuminating looking back at some of his life as to the fact that he felt some of that stuff. But I just thought to me it was just such a stark contrast in terms of what these two, one's a heavyweight, but these two sort of heavyweights of masculinity are giving us in terms of, yes, it used to be that idea of, you know, you belt someone, it's this almost primal masculinity, whereas now it is that vulnerability. It's their ability to sort of touch their emotional side and and have the conversation and open up and face what things inside them potentially led them to being such a competitor in the ring. 
Yes, this idea of facing one's demons and being prepared to acknowledge that, as you say, dealing with the shadow side, as Jung described it, there's a lot of value in that. There's a lot of good that can come from that. And when you think of it, there have always been hints about this capacity for recognising that even by strong people. Well, Winston Churchill famously had struggles with the black dog, as it's sometimes called Abraham Lincoln, another one. And there'd be any number of famous and resourceful characters who have had real difficulties with depression. And um, yeah, fortunately, it is being more openly acknowledged these days. Well, you've stitched me up a little bit with the segue here, bringing up people like Abraham Lincoln and that sort of thing. But you experienced a period of depression in your life as well, didn't you? Do you remember some of the main learnings that came out of that? Certainly, and I had two bouts of depression. One was in third year uni and a second was after I'd been working 10 years as a psychologist at a hospital. Five years I'd been a senior psychologist at the hospital when I had my second bout of depression. Each of them related to some extent to perfectionism. The first one, I'd been struggling with exams A heavy exam week, in the same week, my mother was nearly killed in a car accident. I couldn't think straight. And I was really concerned about failing those exams because I couldn't think straight. And then that went on to become like a fully-fledged depression over a period of time. I really struggled for a period of six or eight months, got help from a social worker. But part of it was finding ways of going on a little less perfectionistically, and I got by with that. Now, when I'd been working for 10 years and became depressed, when I started to uh, function worse, uh, wasn't sleeping well, got to a stage couldn't think so straight again, and then I became severely depressed and really got caught up in the shame about being depressed. But then a couple of things happened with a couple of things friends said to me that were pretty relevant at the time, but then I did see a, a masterful therapist after I'd had a couple of stints in hospital, actually, and not really made a lot of progress, but I made a lot of progress when I saw a particular therapist who helped me further with the perfectionism issue. And can you remember exactly how they helped you or what they said? Well, it's a pretty remarkable thing. It was a fellow, Max Clayton was his name. He was a psychotherapist who had a background in psychodrama. And the first time he saw me, he allowed me to tell my story and he gave me some feedback the first time, which, including how he saw me as a person, I was surprised that how he saw me resonated with how I used to see myself and I thought I'd lost that when I was depressed. And so that helped me have a little bit of hope that there might be some of my healthy personality left that I couldn't be in touch with anymore. But it was actually the second session we went through a two-chair exercise. And it was just remarkable because he had me act out two parts of myself, so to speak. One was utterly harsh and critical, saying how pathetically I was handling this and how hopeless it was and all the rest of it. And in the other chair, I'd be my very vulnerable, overwhelmed self saying, oh, this is so difficult, you know, don't give me such a hard time, I'm trying to do my best or whatever. And he'd have me swap between chairs of this really harsh side of myself that he helped unmask. I hadn't realised how harsh that was. And this other plaintive side. Then at the end of that session, he said to me, I think you have an imperfect solution. And what he was partly getting at is I had been gradually increasing my activities and I had been gradually eking a way forward, not making much progress but a tiny bit. But when he said an imperfect solution, I got out to the car in the car park, put the 
key in the door lock to unlock the car and it felt suddenly, just at that time, unlocking the car, this awareness came to me. He said I had an imperfect solution. I thought, how elegant. What better way could I deal with perfectionism that I knew was a, 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 one of my demons still there? What better way of dealing with that than recover from depression fairly hopelessly, pathetically, taking longer than most of my clients would have, uh, handling it you know, poorly or whatever, and yet still making progress and still recovering, I thought, how elegant, like what better way of recovering than having an imperfect solution? I thought, if I can accept that about myself and how public it was that I was off work and how poorly I'd been handling things, if I could accept that about myself, I thought I could accept anything about myself. So that was really, I suppose, um, engaging with my shadow side and non-acceptance and shame and all the rest of it. And from that point on, it's just like the pressure was off. It's just any kind of progress or even an attempt at progress. That was kind of like enough. And from that point, I thought I'd never get depressed again for the rest of my life. That was 30 years ago. I haven't had a day of depression since. So that for me was a profound turnaround dealing with that aspect of myself. And was that something that in retrospect you look back at now and you think, look, there was a number of things that probably led to that experience or was it in essence the experience itself with that whole, I suppose, change in your thinking that led to that epiphany for you? Well, I suppose that there was a lead up in that in our society too. We get rewarded for achievement and, uh, and so it's good to strive and things like that but that was a lesson I needed to learn. And a number of people need to learn that lesson about harsh expectations of oneself and learning a bit more self-compassion and watching out perfectionism. But I had it pretty bad. And maybe partly because I had been rewarded, whether it be academically or for achievement. And so I really had to unlearn some of the attitudes I had beforehand and have a more balanced uh, perspective. But it came together in that point with an astute and empathic helper who could see that and who had some ways of helping bring that stark challenge I had to the fore. And as a psychologist, how much do you draw on that experience of going through something like that? Well, look, I, I do. When I see people who are very severely depressed, and especially if they're suicidal, then sometimes I do engage in that self-disclosure of saying to people that I know something of what it's like to feel depressed. And I might mention a little bit about my experience, and then people can see that maybe I get it. And that's helped a, a degree. And actually, rem I remember one friend who visited me in hospital and he said all those years ago, 30 or whatever years ago, he said to me, oh, wow, you're going to have an unfair advantage from now on. Now I'm hospitalised with depression. I think, like, as if, as if this could be an advantage. But so it has proved to be. It does make a difference. And I know a number of clients have said to me it's made a difference. Also, having written about it, like I've got a chapter in my book, Positive Psychology of Synchronicity, a chapter called Hell on Earth and then Return to the Light, which is about experiencing and recovering from depression. So that, that's been of, of great benefit. But uh, And certainly I find that with many clients, I see the theme of perfectionism comes up. And now, Rowan, I'll mention something that just comes to mind. Funny in this context that we can maybe discuss this but I can remember like say then the joy of having children a different stage of my life and no longer depressed or whatever and one thing I always thought is I don't want to pass on 
any perfectionistic tendencies to my children. I knew what negative impact that it had for myself and including for you as a firstborn child, a son, I thought, okay, I remember a couple of times when you might have had high school assignments and I started to say, hey, look, uh, yeah, you're watching the TV as well as you've got the computer on, you're trying to do your homework, look, you're looking to try and do too much here, is it better if you just focus um, on one thing? And, uh, and I remember afterwards you did very well on that assignment regardless, and I thought, oh, I better pull my head in and sort of... Uh, I've got to be careful not to pass on my perfectionism to you. So I, I thought I was doing an okay job at that, but I'm not <laughs> sure that I did because I suspect that perfectionism might have been an issue for you as well. Well, firstly, thank you for mentioning some of my uh, some of my deficiencies when it comes to study routines from back in the day. So thank you for letting everyone in on that. But look, I suppose it, the apple doesn't really sort of fall far from the tree in many ways, and. Look, I suppose just to go into a little bit about my experience with all this sort of stuff, as I mentioned a little bit on the last episode, when I was at university, had a uh, best mate took his life from when he was obviously experiencing depression and essentially I was the last person to see him alive and, and that was sort of something that played pretty heavily on me for a long time and for me the idea of perfectionism kind of comes in in this way that I suppose it took me a little while to almost get to this point but... It was almost like in that situation, I was, you know, and again, I always, <laughs> I always sort of draw things back to sports metaphors, but for me, it was almost like I was the goalkeeper in a World Cup final and our team has lost 1-0 and it may not have been me that made the sort of initial defensive error to sort of lead to the goal, but, you know, my gloves were the last ones that that ball passed before it rippled through the net, so... Look, for me, it was very hard to recognise the element to which there was some intuition involved in that and to which I did potentially recognise that there was something a little bit more going on but maybe didn't act until later on. And I suppose for me, the the almost epiphany that kind of came out of that whole episode was, well... If I'm going to be the soccer goalkeeper that, you know, is, is sort of in that position, in many ways we all are that kind of goalkeeper who's standing there and, and you know, may have a shot come at us at any time. Well, recognising that there's no goalkeeper in the history of the world who stopped every goal, but looking within myself, geez, I want to, you know, build up my skills to be a bloody good goalkeeper. You know, I want to be the, the Oliver Kahn, the sort of Manuel Neuer, the Gianluigi Buffon of goalkeepers if we're extending this metaphor. And one thing that kind of came out of that whole experience for me was having such a tangible experience of, of sort of what it is to go through something like that, what it is to experience the pain that someone almost and I don't want to sort of seem too judgmental when I sort of say this but but the pain that is kind of deflected onto you when someone sort of goes through something like that that look I just knew I could never make that choice within myself that I you know having gone through something like that then resolved that well this is nothing that I'll ever be able to do and in making that recognition in making that realization the whole journey for me since then has been about well hold on, it is, you know, you are going to have imperfect solutions here and there, you know, you might have the best goalkeeper in the world, but actually a game of soccer is not just about stopping goals, it's about scoring goals at the same time. So are there sort of things that I can be doing to almost lay certain foundations to, to you know, kind of help my goalkeeping skills to ensure that if I was ever in that situation again, 
what would I be able to do that I would be able to at least say I gave it my bloody best shot in that situation and even you know when I'm stuck in those situations for myself I'm almost now given that opportunity to kind of take my hat off it's almost that idea of well, hold on, what would you do if you were in a situation, it can almost be treated as a thought exercise in some ways, if you were in a situation that someone presented these set of circumstances to you, what would you tell them? What would your advice to them be? And if you can't take that advice on yourself, then geez, mate, what are you doing? That's been so, you know, hypocritical. You need to sort of bloody grow up, you know, take some of this stuff a bit more face on sort of thing. So I suppose if there was anything that sort of came out of it for me, it was... Yeah, you can't be perfect with this sort of stuff. You're not going to be someone who potentially exceeds all of your expectations all of the time, regardless of what those expectations are. But it is maybe a little bit more about recognising, all right, what is my place in this? Let's accept the parameters which are presented to me and how can I actually get the most out of myself in this situation without looking at the situation and thinking it's something that I should have been able to manipulate more. Well, there's um, so much in what you've said there and one of the main things that comes across to me is that tragic circumstance where such a close friend took his life and, and the horrible situation of being you know, perhaps the last person to see him. And one thing that comes up that I see a lot in people's experience is when something tragic happens, healthy people, good people, just will, will naturally wish they could have done something to prevent that. And this happens even if someone has had a car accident and, and a, a friend thought, oh, I was actually going to have lunch with them at that time. If I'd organised lunch with them, then they wouldn't have been in the car at that time and can feel very guilty for that situation. And so what a harsh experience to have had that more direct contact with your friend not long beforehand. And, and again, we were talking about earlier on about how hard, sometimes even impossible, it is to tell where someone's at or if they're feeling suicidal or how suicidal they might feel. And this comes back to the importance of people being open to also reaching out to others and giving ourselves permission to ask other people also more directly where they're at. But it comes back to that theme as well, that that people can really mask or hide their distress through shame, and yet if people take that step of taking their life, it's the theme of the ripple effects how many people that affects so deeply, parents, close friends, and then the family members of those friends. And the ripple effects just keep on going. And that's where we have that theme often, isn't it? We talk about never take your own life. And one thing I pick up that you described then is knowing what it was like yourself to feel depressed, but then maybe making that decision, well, you know, you were not going to do that. You were not going to go down that kind of path. One thing that strikes me, and actually I relate to that, there was a point where I decided, an absolute uh, conscious decision, no matter what happens, I will not take my life. And it might not be obvious at the time, but it actually is dramatic, the impact can have. Because suddenly, rather than people getting caught up in helplessness and, well, will I or won't I do this or that or am I going to not be around anymore? When people actually decide they are going to be around, it just mobilises your problem-solving skills more. And so that can make a profound impact. People are going more from, like, say, passivity to a little bit more taking direction. But what strikes me is when people recover from depression, often there's some little idiosyncratic things that people pick up that they do, little practices that they do. 
And I'm interested in whether you relate to any of that because I, I, I mentioned it comes to mind that when I recovered from my first depression, it was just a simple thing that I did, but one of the things that made the most difference is I had a car radio that was a push-button radio. And when I found myself driving along and then ruminating a little bit, which did happen, you know, like say fairly frequently, my hand would just go out and then press the push button on the radio and then I'd try and listen to the musical instruments and differentiate the instruments. So I was trying to get my intention outside rather than inside. It was a little idiosyncratic strategy I found that worked for me. Now I'm wondering if, how do you relate to the idea, like in your personal experience now, about how much attention you uh, place outside yourself or how much like inside yourself and in your own thinking to not get too caught up in thought so to speak yeah well look for me during that time look I guess I was really looking for a key that was sort of going to unlock something cognitively for me and potentially it came but potentially it came from unburdening myself from the idea that I had to find that key sort of thing so for me potentially the externality kind of came from recognizing that hold on if you just sit here in this kind of internal struggle for so long well you're just going to still be there and you might have a different way of looking at it, but the outcome hasn't necessarily changed. So that potentially opened me up to slightly more external influences, whether it be from friends or opportunities to socialise or that sort of thing that way. Yeah, and one, one of the things that strikes me is when people have been through depression for a long period of time, people can just think that they'll be stuck in it forever. And I certainly remember when I was depressed, I really, it's not just that I thought I'd never get better, it's like I knew I would never get better. It was like an absolute conviction would never get better. But it doesn't tend to last forever. You know, nearly everybody I know who's been severely depressed has then reached a point of being non-depressed and it might be very hard, like it really is hell on earth whilst you're going through it. Literally, I think that's where hellish kind of notions and imagery comes from. But I think that's one of the key points in this. It doesn't tend to stay stuck forever and it mightn't be very um, elegant or neat or it might be with great distress but typically people reach a point where something can shift and if people look to have some way of looking to deal with it a little bit themselves on their own terms do something do something themselves to make a shift ultimately it is a hopeful message because it's very, very rare that someone just stays very stuck in depression for a very long time. And when that's the case, it's usually with something like chronic trauma in the background. And if the trauma can be addressed, often that alleviates the depression further. But it's, yeah, things might seem black, might seem black forever, but it, it virtually never just stays that way. Well, one thing that I'm interested in is what are your thoughts on why people do get depressed? Because... Look, suicide is obviously such a horrible thing and it's something that, as we've been talking about, there are always ways out of depression. It's never the answer. But look, we've had how many hundreds of millions of years of human evolution and biology now? Why is it that people still get depressed? Why is it that we haven't been able to work out a way to not experience these all-encompassing such dark feelings? Well, look, I think one of the main things is that there will always be loss. With life, there will always be loss. There will be trauma. There are events that we can't control. There are events that can happen that will lead to lots of helplessness. Like just around this time, 300,000 people around the world have died from the coronavirus. Now, that's just horrendous with COVID-19, its impact. 
300,000 people and all the other people who are left sick from it, like their family members, the ripple effects of that. Now, we're not going to escape depression and grief and loss and sadness in life when that is part of our reality and I think that's part of the Buddhist idea of watching out for attachments if we become overly attached to things it can be material things or if we're so invested in a relationship that that defines our life that again makes us more vulnerable in different ways so part of it is just part of life is tragic actually as one person put it a tragic view of life is not inconsistent with positive psychology tragic things happen and that's a part of life but there again there are still things that make life worthwhile and so that's the positive psychology aspect like i will die you will die everyone we know will die there are tragedies that will occur and yet there are things that make life worthwhile that's the positive psychology so there's that side of things but i also think there's another element these days i think the world has become more complex and I think that's part of the reason why, notice in recent years, there's, I think, more depression in young people who think deeply about things. And I noticed that, that uh, I used to wonder, why is it that, you know, look, these resourceful, capable, bright young people seem more susceptible in some ways to depression than others? I think it's partly because when people do think deeply about things, they're more likely to pick up on some of the concerns in the world whether it be around climate change, whether it be around inequality, whether it be around all sorts of different aspects of life that become complex. It's more difficult for people sometimes to, say, choose careers or, you know, what kind of lifestyle will I adopt? There's far more choices now and far more complexity. Now, that means life is less simple than it was, and I think that means that people are going to be a little bit more susceptible to depression because of finding it's harder for people to find themselves and a life direction when things are more complex. But I think that the positive things about this is when people have the capacity to bear with their concern or confusion or doubt or questioning, I think that can actually lead to change. I think sometimes the people who are more open to thinking deeply about things might be more prone to depression, but also might be more prone to come up with creative ideas for making improvements in the world. And and so I suspect that there is some evolutionary utility to depression in terms of the capacity to become depressed, the capacity to acknowledge being stuck, helpless or whatever. Stuckness is a state that can lead to creativity. Helplessness can lead people through feeling stuck and going internally and looking for solutions. As difficult and challenging as that might be, I think in the long run it can help us come up with more creative solutions. Well, that actually reminds me of something that you told me once, which is the idea that when we have sort of an ingrained worldview it almost needs to be blown apart to be able to come together in a new way. And after having a discussion with you earlier in the week about sort of what depression is and why is it still kind of around in terms of within the kind of human sort of biology of things, for me, if I look at depression, it's it's a sense of loss of something that, that you've lost, but it's also that worldview. It's also, it's the fact that your worldview has been completely obliterated and there is almost that thought of, oh gosh, where does it end? In the sense that it almost takes that ceiling off the negativity of things because you think, 
gosh, what what else is there that I maybe hadn't considered? What else is there that I hadn't sort of integrated within my view of the world that could potentially come up and trip me up in the same way? Yes, it's so hard going through that when our way of looking at things is so turned upside down and broken apart. But yeah, what we're talking about now, it gets back at that theme of living systems and how living systems work. And all living systems tend to have a process of evolution, which includes stages where things completely come apart. But if things have completely come apart, then when they get together again, they get together in a new way, which is always a higher order organisation than before. So if we think of a traffic system, and uh, you know, you get traffic jams, and and then people just can't get from point A to point B. Well, so they think of well, we need some kind of new element added, and so you add a ring road, and then suddenly there's a transformation. You add a ring road, and all the rest of it. But then we know that there'll be a time down the track that that will get stuck, and you'll need some other innovation like tunnels or something like that. It's the nature of any living system that there can be times where things just come apart, don't work anymore in the same way. And actually, that is something that did help me in the back of my mind with uh, the second depression I went through. I believed in this notion of living systems and how they worked. And I thought, well, I was so broken apart that if ever things did get back together in any kind of acceptable way, I knew it would have to be a higher order way than how I'd seen things before. And that's ultimately what happened. Once things did get back with being able to accept, say, imperfect solutions to things, for example, then not only do you have all your same resources you had before, like with the traffic system, you've got all the streets that you had before, but and something is added to it, whether it be a ring road or a different kind of perspective. So it's remembering that if we're depressed, we're going through the dark night of the soul. And that's just a stage, the second stage of evolution. Four stages of change. The first stage, we're going along and then something tips the balance. We get stuck. Stage two, dark night of the soul. That's depression. It can feel hellish. Stage three, we get some kind of shift or awareness or whatever. It might be, hey, I can have an imperfect solution. Stage four is when we consolidate the new learning. And so a whole lot of what people get from coming through depression is new learning of what they gained from having gone through the dark night of the soul and found some other different way of looking at things where the person has then grown. They're more developed than they were before, had all their previous resources and something else is added to that. Well, I know in science there's the idea that if you have a theory about something, it's almost like when that theory gets blown apart, to then form a new theory inherently to integrate sort of everything that you're now aware of, it has to be more fully formed. So in many ways, depression is almost like a crisis of theory And we then have to realise that we have to come up with a new way out of it, a new way of looking at things to get through. So I guess if we look at general psychology now, what are some of the main psychological strategies to get people out of depression when they're in that dark night of the soul? Well, there are a few basic ones. One of the main things is some kind of activity. So we use this term behavioural activation. Doing something, doing anything makes a difference. Walking around the block, doing the washing up, preparing a basic meal, some kind of activity, we call it behavioural activation. It especially helps if we engage in activities that give a sense of achievement or a sense of pleasure. And at first it might be hard to see the achievement or uh, experience the pleasure, but 
activities that give us a sense of that can help. Certainly the notion of mindfulness, some kind of relaxation, meditation kind of technique, that also helps with anxiety. But mindfulness is also to do with being in the here and now and maybe our senses turned outwardly. And we know that those things, here and now, senses turned outwardly, is far more helpful than being internal and ruminating, say, on the past or feeling fears of the future. Social supports is something else that's very important. Being open to drawing on the support of friends and others and that it's tough, but if people can acknowledge having difficulty, hey, I'm really struggling at the moment, I'm not feeling my usual self, and then maybe being prepared to talk to your GP or something like that, to be able to acknowledge one's difficulties, to accept them, and then showing a degree of self-compassion, that can help. But I'd say particularly the activities, looking to pick up our negative thinking and challenging that, partly by getting our attention outwardly, but also picking up some of the overly rigid judgments and over-generalisations that we have, the negative thinking and looking to counter that. Well, it seems to me, in similar ways to the last episode with anxiety, that the character strengths are going to be something that's particularly applicable in this situation, especially when we're talking about things like deriving pleasure and achievement from activities. Are the character strengths something that you almost point people towards to help them with that? Yeah, look, I think they give an extra bit of assistance in terms of looking at what kind of activities might give us a sense of achievement and pleasure or help us be in the moment, like being in a state of flow. They will tend to be activities that draw on our top character strengths, like, for example, appreciation of, of beauty. Uh, then that, that's a clue that being outside in nature, maybe going on a bushwalk might be a particular uh, helpful thing of being in the moment as well as a sense of pleasure. I remember when I was feeling a little bit depressed it was almost the first time that I came across the character strengths in a way that really resonated with me because I remember, you know, feeling sort of rubbish about the world, rubbish about myself and my place in it. Doing the character strengths test almost allowed me to look at it and kind of go, hold on, I've just answered this stuff now, but if you had asked me half an hour ago, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that I'd retained a lot of these strengths within myself. So, I imagine that's part of it where it comes in too, in recognising that the essence of you is still there, even though you are experiencing some very negative thoughts. Yeah, that's a very helpful observation. And I find that's one of the ways that I do use it with clients who are depressed. I tend not to go through the character strengths with them, like say immediately, because people are often so caught up in the low energy and the poor sleep and can't think straight, that it might not be the right timing. But as people are gradually progressing a little bit, maybe through that uh, behavioural activation and starting to maybe look at things a little bit straighter, if people do the character strengths exercise, then they're often very surprised by how the results that they get in their top strengths are similar to how they would have seen themselves in the past but they think they've lost themselves in the past they think that's no more that they've lost all their good characteristics if you like and so it's very affirming for them similar to what you just described yourself it helps people recognize that maybe their essence is still there maybe things have gone out of whack or whatever but it helps people get a little bit more in touch with the good that is still there well, I remember for me, judgment and perspective are two of the character strengths that are at the top of sort of my profile. And they were potentially strengths that got me into a little bit of trouble during that time. So 
I wonder if the tendency could be there to maybe over-rely on those strengths that are at the top from us and maybe not have as balanced of a profile as we would usually. Yeah, look, I think that's an astute observation, that one, because we can overuse our top strengths. And let's face it, if we're depressed, then we're going to be tending to think in a negative direction. And that means that if people have a propensity to use that judgment or perspective or to reflect actively on things, it means that people are going to be prone to reflect in an extra negative kind of way. So not just overusing the strength, but it can turbocharge our negativity. It can turbocharge your negative thinking. So maybe important to then combine that with maybe the other strengths of forgiveness and humility, show a bit of self-compassion and maybe a little bit of self-regulation to be a little bit determined to not overthink in that situation where we just tend to get into more trouble. So how do we find the balance in that situation? If we are someone who is potentially overusing some of their strengths whilst feeling depressed, how do we almost find the balance in still wanting to derive pleasure and achievement from things as we've spoken about, which we may rely on our top strengths for in some ways, but obviously not wanting to overuse them as well to get us into a little bit of trouble in some ways. In the first instance, when people are severely depressed, I think it's just so hard to think straight that it just helps to think less. And I think in the first instance, it's dialing down the judgment and perspective. So people more might focus on a bit of distraction, getting their attention outside themselves, any kind of physical exercise, any kind of activity that gets people's attention outside themselves at first. But when people are maybe more mildly or moderately depressed, or as people are maybe making progress with their depression, I think that's when we can draw more on the judgment and perspective, especially if it's combined with learning certain cognitive therapy techniques of looking for overgeneralizations in our thinking. Notice the black and white in our thinking. Step back and reflect on our thinking. This is a good aspect of perspective and judgment. And a lot of the therapy techniques that work well for depression, uh, techniques that get us to step back and identify our negative thoughts and then question them, such as, I'm a failure. Well, what, all the time in everything? Aren't there some things that you do well or I should have done this or I should have done that? Well, wait a minute, that's maybe a bit black and white kind of thinking or I always screw up with such and such. Well, look, maybe that's a bit of an overgeneralization. So look, at first it can be we get maybe overly caught up in thinking it's worth doing less, but as we make progress, we can draw on those strengths to then reflect on our thinking and become more aware of the harshness of it. I'm just looking down the list here and particularly at the humanity character strengths and, you know, we look at love, kindness and social intelligence in particularly. I look back at sort of my periods of of depression and think that potentially those character strengths were a little more affected than others. Are there ways of, I suppose, if they are sort of character strengths that someone has up the top of their list, are there ways of almost tapping into that even though that the depression might be sort of drawing us away from those sorts of strengths? Well, look, I think in the first instance, again, if people are severely depressed, they tend to be so self-judgmental that it's hard to show much love and kindness towards oneself. But I think one thing is if they are usual strengths, look to at least be open to other people showing kindness towards you. Look at least to be open to other people showing signs of love. In other words, look to be open to the social support. 
Because one of the best things we can do if we're feeling severely depressed is accept the fact that we're stuck, we're at a loss, we've run out of any kind of notion ourselves of how to help, but be open to help from others is one of the main kind of things we can do. Now, as people are making progress, again, maybe more mildly or moderately depressed or or feeling that they've made some progress, then any activities of kindness to other people can make a real difference. For example, I know a story of a, a fellow who had some past trauma and depression and his therapist once said to him that the therapist wasn't sure how to help him. He was so stuck with his depression but the therapist suggested that maybe what he could do is go and help other people. And uh, Destination Happiness had an episode on this fellow who started up Aussie Helpers working with farmers and assisting farmers because he felt that he was finally able to find some people maybe with a worse plight than himself and in helping them with his remarkable kindness that also is part of his solution to make great advances with depression himself so yeah as we progress doing things for the benefit of other people are going to tend to benefit the person but when people are severely depressed they haven't got much generally in way of any resources to offer to others so be open to help from others to you Well, it seems to me that similar to last week, the character strengths in this situation can almost give us that engagement with life that if they weren't there, there wouldn't necessarily be as much pulling us out of those periods of depression and pulling us out of those feelings of negativity. So potentially, as you say, at the time, like I I look down this list and I sort of think, you know, like the last thing in the world I would have wanted to be doing when I was sort of feeling rubbish is doing something like the character strengths exercise. But at the same time, As you say, I think it is about recognising that in the peaks and troughs of things, when you are at a slight peak, if there is a way of using some of this stuff to ensure that you don't just slide back out into that trough, it just gives us almost a tool or a vehicle to be able to move forward in some way. And and again, it comes back to that idea of just recognising the progression when it's there. Yeah, look, I think it's partly the timing, as you're suggesting. When people are in the throes of depression, that's not when I'd tend to encourage them to fill out their character strengths. Even though there might be some benefit that could come from it, people tend not to have the energy or the engagement or interest then. But how I tend to use it in a therapy session is more towards the tail end of therapy. Use the more conventional therapy techniques to help people alleviate their depression. And then as people are making progress and also what we call relapse prevention, help people less likely become depressed in future, part of that is on the tail end of therapy or once people have eased their depressive symptoms and can concentrate better, then when people do the character strengths exercise, realise their wonderful resources that are still there, then look to actively draw on them in some ways, then people are less likely to relapse into depression. It's likely to help them in future. So... When someone is experiencing an extended period of depression for a relatively long time, we've been through the character strengths, they don't seem to be feeling any better in the immediate term. Are there any things that we can then turn to almost as, for lack of a better term, a last resort? One of the main things is when people stay persistently depressed, I find more often than not there's some unresolved loss or trauma And so I find from a therapy point of view, there's a lot of benefit of being able to identify unresolved trauma or grief because processing that further will tend to lead to real improvements in depression. 
But when people have been in the throes of depression for a long time, or sometimes it might be because they've got some law case unfolding, there might be a very messy family law dispute, or they might be going through the work cover system and they're yet to have a finalisation of their work cover claim. There are times when people just have to hang in there until those things are resolved. And then it'll tend to be six or 12 months, for example, after a work cover case is resolved. That's when people tend to go much better. And rarely do people go much better, in my experience, if they've had a lot of depression, than until, say, that court case is resolved, for example. But in other situations, sometimes people just have to hang in there, bear with it with whatever kind of way, and then over a lengthy period of time, even incrementally, things tend to improve. And I think the main thing is holding some hope. And when people are very depressed, it makes a big difference if there are other people around them who hold hope for them. That can include family members, it can include a a therapist or whatever. But the thing is, People very rarely stay in that state like indefinitely. I can hardly think of anyone who has. It can be years that people can feel stuck in the more severe cases, usually when there's trauma as well. But I think the thing is, any which way, if people have any active strategy, even if it gives a little bit of relief to get through some time or whatever, then you draw on whatever. And then sometimes it really takes that perseverance to get through. And what are your thoughts on antidepressants? Because we look at the number of people who've been prescribed antidepressants in recent years and it's absolutely shot up. So what are your thoughts there on whether there's, is there any utility at all? Is there, from what you've described, it's almost like there's more cognitive solutions out of things. So is there ever a time when antidepressants is appropriate? Yes, look, I certainly think so. I think antidepressants are really overused. I will say that. I think sometimes it's used as a just a go-to kind of um, treatment and overdone because, like, say, in our practice, we find that there's two-thirds of people with major depressive disorder who are on antidepressants and one-third who aren't, and the one-third who aren't, on average recover just as quickly and just as well as the two-thirds who are and also in a similar time frame. So I think antidepressants are overdone. However, we actually recommend that people talk with their GP about antidepressants if they're not on them, if they have a very severe depression or if they've tried psychological techniques and are not gaining much benefit from it. Or look, it could be also if people very much have an interest themselves or want to access antidepressant medication because any treatment, including medication, works better if people want it. Now, that might seem pretty obvious, but it's not as if all treatments work equally for all people and someone actually wanting that treatment is a significant factor. So if someone wants it or if they're severely depressed or they've stayed depressed for a very long time or not responded to psychological therapies, then I think it is indicated. And what I see then is often antidepressants can benefit people, but I put it this way. It's like a body surfer catching a wave. The antidepressants are like a wave. It can give that potential momentum. But the person still has to actively use it, not just passively respond to the antidepressants and swallow it. The idea is for the person to, how can I make the most of this? And if the person rides the wave of the little bit of improvement in mood, little bit of the improvement maybe in sleep or tiredness or concentration, then actually 
antidepressants and psychological therapy can work very well together because the antidepressants sometimes can give that little bit of a lift in mood, like a wave in a body surfer, and if the person responds to that little bit of a lift by doing things like the behavioural activation, like challenging their thinking, like getting their attention outward on things that give a sense of achievement or pleasure, then they work well together. And again, like we spoke about before, that's where the character strengths can come in, in terms of leveraging that slight peak to be able to sort of progress through some of those negative feelings. But just before we finish up, Dad, I will just mention a couple of things that we've put on the website, because I think they're particularly relevant here. But we've mentioned our resources page on the website. And if you go down to the right hand side of that, there's a tags column. And under the tags column, there'll be a a depression section there. We've got a a section on suicidality if you're looking for more on what we've spoken about today. But there's a whole range of topics there that you'll be able to go down and choose your topic. And we'll have a whole range of videos, articles, podcasts, blogs on a range of things. So we'll look to, to get through some of those topics in the next few episodes. But yeah, certainly invite everyone to go along to the website at chrismackey.com.au. And we've got the email for the podcast at podcast at chrismackey.com.au. But look, thanks for chatting with me today, Dad. I think it was, uh, it was good that we sort of did this. It was not necessarily the most sort of comfortable thing to be talking about at times. But I do hope that everyone out there is able to get something out of it and look, even if it is in terms of helping someone who is slightly depressed. So thanks for that today, Dad. And yeah, looking forward to next episode. And thanks, Rowan. I think today shows a bit, sometimes you can get problems from your parents like perfectionism. Gee, your mum's got a lot to answer for. (laughs)